Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is the Highlighter Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 26th episode of the Highlighter Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is an opportunity for us to talk about the best articles and podcast episodes on race, education, and culture. And I'm really excited about today's guest. On the show, we have Alvin Chang, and he is the senior graphics reporter at Vox. And if you've been following the newsletter, you'll know that I have featured him a couple times in the last couple weeks. This past week's newsletter has his piece on the long-term effects of growing up and living in poor neighborhoods. And two issues ago, there was his piece about school resegregation. And that's the topic of today's interview. Alvin Chang is just really good at explaining through data and cartoons and history how some of the most intractable issues of our day come not from chance, but actually from real decisions that we make day to day, and that there is something that we can do about it. So I am very excited to have him on the show, and let's get right to that interview. Thank you so much for being on the show, um, Alvin. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Alvin Chang. I am a senior reporter at Vox. We do kind of explainer journalism. And my specific role there is covering policy in a way, uh, in a visual way, but in a way that kind of explores a lot of the incentive structures in a way that is very data-driven. Because I think a lot of times when we uh, read the news, we struggle to think critically about um, what's actually happening uh, and kind of fall into either partisan partisan catchphrases or fall into kind of accepting what our tribe is saying. And so the goal for me is to figure out a way to essentially teach people more critical ways of thinking about these issues. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I'd love to talk more about that. But before we do that, is it okay to step back and just talk a little bit more about your journey, about how you got to Vox, and specifically also your passion around um, explanatory or data journalism? Yeah, of course. So I started out wanting to be a, a Metro reporter, essentially being one of those people in Spotlight, the movie. And uh, unfortunately, I graduated at a time where, when the economy wasn't great. And my first job was as, as a hockey writer at ESPN. And one of the very challenging things about that the first job was figuring out how to add value to the content without having access to, say, coaches or players or general managers. So I started digging through a whole bunch of data and teaching, teaching myself how to ask questions of the data that are productive. And that's kind of how I, I first got into data journalism is, is wanting to answer questions without having access to the people to answer those questions for me. That kind of evolved into using the data and communicating that data to other people in a way that's concise and clear. I went to grad school at NYU in this program called the Interactive Telecommunications Program. And there, uh, I, I thought a lot about how do, how do we communicate using all, you know, we have all this new technology and these new communication mediums. How do we use those things to, to essentially teach our readers about concepts that they often don't have very much context for? So 
after grad school, I went to the uh, worked at the Boston Globe, worked with the people who who actually were in the Spotlight movie, which was a, an incredible experience. And then went to this place called the Connecticut Mirror, where it's it's re- recovering state house policy uh, out of the state house. It's a small nonprofit. Um, and throughout all this this entire time, I'm thinking, I'm, you know, the thought process is there's a lot of policy that kind of shapes the underlying bumps and incentive structures that we don't necessarily teach or talk about when we do our journalism because it's really hard. It requires, but, but that context ends up being the most important thing. It, it teaches us kind of ways to think about some of the most important issues of today. And it often explains some of the disagreements we have. It's, we don't have that same shared history of why to think about something or equity in a certain way. So that's kind of how or, or why I chose to work at Vox. Uh, Vox was a place where teaching and context and explaining things that that seem to not be explained in other places was valued. And I think you see it in a lot of my work where where I'm literally, it, it, they end up being history lessons of a sort because the new part of the story is, is a very small chunk, but I want to make sure my readers have the proper context to think about why something is unfair or why something is not being done in a smart way or why something is is um, isn't equitable. And so I think that's kind of where my passions lie is uh, teaching with the hope that it provides the proper context for people to take in new information critically. I mean, as I'm talking, I'm realizing maybe I should have been a school teacher, but um, but but I you know this is it's been a really interesting process because I think a lot of it is is kind of a newer a newer endeavor where I'm trying out a certain things and seeing how they work and trying out other things and seeing they don't work at all. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I also appreciate your emphasis of context. And I do agree with you that we have all of these um, mental ideas and maps based on uh, sort of our own lived experiences and background. And I do notice the same thing in your work is that there is always a history lesson. My question is on this piece, um, which focuses on on connecting perhaps political gerrymandering with what happens in school districts, as well as school uh, desegregation and resegregation efforts, um, it seems to be a, a big interest and passion of yours. Um, where did that come from? Is it something that you've been interested in for a while, or is it is it more um, a newer thing for you? So I think one of the most fascinating things about about looking at segregation patterns is it gives you kind of uh, the shadows of the geography of the incredibly uh, racist and exclusionary and discriminatory policies that the U.S. Uh, had not that long ago and, and still have to an extent. And I think what's really difficult for folks to wrap their heads around is how do those policies that we all kind of look back on and say, well, that's those those weren't right. Those weren't equitable, equitable at all. What's really difficult is connecting those policies with today, you know, to say, you know, we're 50 years removed from, say, the Fair Housing Act, or we're X number of years removed from, uh, you know, about 50 years removed from the, the civil rights movement. And we're 50 years removed from, you know, or 60 years, I guess, from Brown v. Board. How do those things continue to affect what is happening, the, the racial inequities that exist today. When we look at segregation, it's just, you know, it's just incredibly apparent. And, and we can see 
both the contours of housing segregation. We can see both the con- the contours of Brown v. Board. We can see that even though <laughs> separate but equal was was ruled unconstitutional, we we can see all these incentive structures that were built up that that have yet to be torn down and continue to segregate our schools. So I think that's that's why I I write about school segregation. It's and and, it, and I think the the kind of other side of this is. You know, your listeners probably know this better than most, but the American the American education system is not a meritocracy. It often has uh, structural biases that perpetuate the inequalities that exist. Perpetuate. So, if you're a upper middle middle class person, chances are your kids will be upper middle class people, and a huge portion of that has to do with the American education system. Uh, everything from K twelve to uh, higher ed, and so I think. When you when you combine those things together, you combine the importance of education in in the transfer of wealth through generations, and then you combine the contours of our very racist past and and essentially trace that directly to where we are today to say, hey, this still exists. I think that should help us think, uh, a think, well, this isn't fair, and b think, well, this is not only not fair, but it's really wrong. I guess that's one big point. <laughs> but but the other thing is think, okay, well, what can we do here to make this a more equitable system? It, it gives you the framework to think about things like redistricting. It gives you frameworks to think about things like charter schools and private schools. Because I think without thinking about those uh, those ideas or, or thinking about this context, you know, if we just take everything in a vacuum and look at where we are now, we can just say, oh, well, why don't we just give everyone a fair, sh-? you know, why don't we just give everyone an equal shot and treat everyone the same? And it's, you know, the answer is because we haven't treated everyone the same. And here we are today. And so I think that that connection, it's really important to make that connection direct and concrete. And I think that's that all comes to a head in this this idea of uh, or this concept of school segregation and this phenomenon that continues to kind of kind of bleed into virtually every part of the American education system. Yeah, I appreciate the the direct link and also the history and the storytelling. But when you come to, um, say, a thesis, you know, that our educational system is not a meritocracy and that there's structural bias, that's something that I also believe in and probably many of um, listeners believe in. My question is, as a data journalist, a lot of folks wanted to know how you take on a large data set. How did you get to a place uh, on this piece? I, I think it makes sense to kind of talk about how this piece came to be. Uh, I first wrote about school segregation or, or wrote a, a bigger piece kind of on this issue, I would say about six months ago. It was looking at school school district secession, small communities within districts that wanted to create their own districts. They tended to be whiter, more affluent communities, and they wanted to kind of hoard their resources and keep it within their own district bounds or their, their new district bounds, I suppose. And after I did that piece, uh, this researcher, Tomas Monares from UC Berkeley, he reached out to me and he said, hey, I've been working on this this research. It relates somewhat to your piece. Do you want to talk about this? And so I got on the phone with him. I talked to him about what he was working on. And I just thought, this is this is incredible. I was blown away by what he had been working on. And I think, you know, we, we got lucky because we both spoke the same technical and conceptual language. We were both able to understand what each other, what, what we were doing, what our technical capabilities were, and what our kind of conceptual understanding of the issues were pretty pretty much off the bat. 
So I guess that's how this project got started. The question of what to include and what not to include, this is always a tricky one for me because there's a lot that gets edited out. You know, if I had an infinite attention span uh, from my from my readers, then I would include a lot more. But, um, you know, so I also teach, I, I teach an undergrad class and I know that infinite attention spans are, are things of dreams that never exist. So, <laughs> so I have to figure out, you know, how, what is important here? What is the, uh, what are the incentive structures that we need to explain? What are the historical, the historical factors that we need to, we need to explain? And when it comes to inequity in schools, I've, I've written about this several times and, it, and I, I've kind of boiled it down to be able to talk about both housing segregation and a, as it relates to migration patterns, as it relates to school segregation in a way that I think is tight and to the point. And so that's kind of it's, it's, it's been a work in progress, I guess. And I'm still trying to find find better ways to explain this without going through, you know, six Supreme Court cases and going through you know, 17 data points, um, which I have in the past. But I think it's important to talk both about kind of the actual events that happen, you know, whether they're policies passed or Supreme Supreme Court rulings. And it's also important to talk about, show kind of the the large scale data that, that shows you the bird's eye view of what it caused or what happened afterward. So I think that's where my use of data comes in, is trying to either get a bird's eye view or to drive home a concept because at the end of the day you know every you can look through a million different districts and, and find similar patterns of segregation similar pa- patterns of both housing and school segregation but i think what what made this data set so powerful was i was able to kind of kind of show you hey look it exists in your backyard too it's not just some big concept it exists in your backyard and so i think uh this data set was especially kind of a a double whammy of me being able to make something really visceral for the reader, but also give them this this context of of, of showing this historical data, showing the effects of policy, showing that it actually affects their current day situation. Yeah, usually in explainers, it's either or. It's either the engagement interactivity, like here's your school district, you know, is it better or worse, or it's the history, or it's the cartoon. And uh, I'm just very impressed with both the the concrete and clear way that you have approached this, but also that it's not just one thing. And I think that that's what uh, listeners have said and readers have said. They've said, yeah, it totally did keep me engaged, especially to question this idea. So I think that there is an idea that, that you challenged that the only way to integrate is between school districts and um, both by bringing up uh, the 1974 Supreme Court decision as well as um, other things that you have in your piece, it seems like you want us to consider not just parents, but also educators and district leaders that there are additional ways to perhaps desegregate even at the district by district level. Is that what you were shooting for as part of your piece? Yeah. I mean, we're left with uh, such a weak tool to integrate schools, which is this uh, intra-district effort. Uh, you know, I, I bring up Milliken v. Bradley, the 1974 Supreme Court case, to show that it, it severely limited the ability of us to actually tackle the real kind of the larger scale segregation that exists in the underlying geography of where we live. But I, I wanted I wanted folks to really think, okay, here's what's left. And 
here's what we're doing with this small tool that we have left. And it turns out what we're doing is we're just letting the underlying segregation kind of fester and or or even making it worse without actually challenging whether or not these decisions matter in terms of racial equity, in terms of any kind of equity. So I think that's, you know, we don't we often don't think too critically about, you know, when, when we sit down to redistrict, you know, I, I would venture to guess that a very small portion of school boards are thinking, oh, well, let me let me make sure that everyone on the board understands the uh, these Supreme Court decisions, these trends that are, are festering. Make sure we understand racial equity when it comes to school segregation. I, I highly doubt that. I think a lot of times we just use kind of our intuitive maps in our head to decide, oh, well, this makes sense to put these kids over here. This makes sense to put these kids over here. And as it turns out, that's a, it's a pretty terrible way of making decisions, especially when it's the there is this there are these biases that really that are really hard to overcome without actually confronting them head on. So that's the that's the charge that <laughs> that's the the thing that I want folks to kind of challenge themselves on is asking themselves when they make these decisions, are we perpetuating something that uh, are we, you know, whether inadvertently or or purposefully perpetuating something that hurts the most disadvantaged students in our schools. And I just don't think we think think in these terms critically enough, I guess. Yeah, I see that in your work, this idea of mental models and also maps in our head and challenging and challenging those. And I think that that's so, so crucial in in education. I do also want to ask, though, because a couple of folks brought it up, is that uh, there does seem to be sort of like a, a premise that you have that integration is the way to go. And I'm a huge fan, say, of like Nicole Hannah-Jones and her work. And and I believe in, in integration. And yet I do see it as something that's actually being debated, whether there's no more will to have integration of schools or whether people are openly and honestly challenging it. Do you feel like it's something to bring up or do you feel like it's not appropriate to bring up the potential question in your work about whether desegregation is um, the right way to, to advance educational equity? So I think there are two questions here. I think one is desegregation is too hard. It's when you let the, mar- the free markets reign, let everyone move where they will, uh, let districts form where they, where they will, this desegregation isn't going to happen. It's too hard. And to, to those folks, and I've heard this argument before, to those folks, I say, yeah, you're right. You know, if we don't do anything, there, it's, it's almost as if uh, the metaphor I've used before is it, it's, it's if you, as if you pour ice cold water in a tub of bacon fat it'll just start it'll just start clumping together and start you'll start getting this segregation that's kind of the natural state of how segregation has tended to work there are many reasons for that but i think you know to 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 say okay this is too hard is one thing um and i you know to that i say well let's we got to try hard the more under the kind of underlying question is why integrate right why is it more equitable to integrate or why is this something we talk about I think there's a, a lot of research that shows that, A, our segregation policies are, are policies that segregated black children from white children, that policies that segregated black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods. A lot of that has made it difficult for black families to accrue wealth. It has also put black families in the cycle of uh, 
being in ghettos and being unable to get out of ghettos that were created by racist policies. And we can see that in any data about intergenerational wealth, where you see that black families just haven't accrued wealth at the same rate as white, white families and even Hispanic families. And so what we're essentially saying is we have put a whole, uh, a whole race people in and concentrated, concentrated them in poor neighborhoods and made it difficult for them to accrue wealth. And that hasn't changed. And all the research shows that if you are concentrated in a poor neighborhood, your, your health outcomes are lower, your happiness is lower, your educational outcomes are lower, your economic outcomes are lower. Virtually, you know, living in a poor neighborhood is in, a, in concentrated poverty is one of the worst things for your health ever. You know, what worst things for your life. If we think that's not fair, that some people have to have to suffer those consequences because of where American policies put them, then I think, you know, it's, we need to actually think integration is is something we need to think about. I mean, you know, maybe you can think of other solutions, but but I think that's where I'm coming from. It's when you when you put a when you force people to live in poverty, don't let them accrue wealth, and then all of a sudden, 50 years later, you say, well, what are you complaining about? It's, it's, that doesn't seem right to me. And the data seems to bear that out. So if we can kind of uh, get out of this mindset of thinking, well, why are we trying to um, socially engineer a certain kind of integration or a certain kind of diversity and get more into the mindset of how do we, how do we help children who, how do we help all children who have who are all, we're all, you know, kind of products of the systemic biases that we've grown up in. And if we can kind of keep those in mind, I think we end up coming to this place of, well, integration actually, it turns out is very important. Um, it turns out a lot of policies that deconcentrate poverty are very important. It turns out a lot of policies that reduce uh, violent crimes are very important. And I think that's kind of, that those are kind of the models that I'm, I'm hoping to convey um, and mostly because I think a lot, virtually all the research kind of bears out these mental models as being true. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you. I have one last question, if that's okay. Yeah, is it all right? Of course. Uh, yeah. My last one is actually from a science teacher here in the Bay Area. And I think it's a follow-up um, about what he or any classroom teacher can do, given that, you know, say most of uh, his time is, you know, with his students. Uh, his name's Jonathan, and he asked a question. Uh, the question is, should our focus as progressive educators be fighting for more integrated schools or focusing on more equitable, not equal, but equitable school funding policies? And uh, I feel like I know your answer is probably toward integration, but as the last question, let's say that you are a classroom teacher and you have your students as they are, and let's say that perhaps it's not an integrated setting. What do you think should be, what would you offer a classroom teacher about what to be thinking about um, and then to sort of how to conceptualize the role in this? I mean, I think it, you know, I think I, I would generally lean toward integration, but that said, I, one of the, uh, one of the lessons I learned time and again, as I look through larger scale data sets is that so much of this is situational and so much of it requires uh, a locally tailored solution. And I think that the solution in the Bay Area, Bay Area and kind of the, the models to think about this in the Bay Area might be very different than how we think about it in where I'm from in Kansas. So I guess that's kind of that's kind of a cop out answer. 
but I guess I would offer one other thing, which is that the teachers and especially white teachers have have a political clout uh, in a community. And many, in, in, you know, I would say most communities in the U.S., they have a political clout that I think it's important to be aware of. And and that creates a sort of responsibility. It's, you know, it's something that comes up often when I talk to folks of why doesn't this community you know, solve these problems politically? And the answer is often the communities that are most vulnerable are those who are having kind of policies that are, they're act, the policies are acted upon them instead of policies that they are deciding. And so I think that's something to, to keep in mind, but I know it's a cop out to kind of go with, <laughs> go with the, uh, go with the like narrowly tailored solution. But I think that's, that's the right way to think about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. This was great. Big thanks to Alvin Chang for being on the show. Everybody probably knows that I have really cared about this issue of school integration and school segregation, resegregation for a long time. And it's one thing to read tons of articles, which obviously I've done, and it's another thing to be able to talk and listen to an expert. So once again, thank you, Alvin Chang, for being on the Highlighter Podcast. Before we go, I do want to say one more thing, which is I want to hear from you, your questions, your comments on the show, and I have a phone number for you to call to leave a voicemail. It is 415 886-7475. It's a Google Voice that'll go directly to voicemail. So leave any and all comments that you have about the show or a question um, for an upcoming broadcast. It would be really great to hear um, from you and also who's really, really focusing in on the show. So definitely take me up on this offer to give me a call. 415-886-7475. I hope you have a great week and I'll see you over at the newsletter at at 9, 10 a.m. this Thursday.